Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music, and welcome to our morning service today. We are still in the book of Galatians, but at the very end, chapter 6, verse 14 to 18, and message number 27. So don't know how we squeezed that many in here, but we did, and we will finish up the book of Galatians this morning. And I've titled the message, as you see, Boasting in the Cross, which is what Paul mentions in the first verse here in verse 14. This is the last message, but I think the way Paul ends the book is a wonderful way. He says, God forbid that I should glory or boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we're, we're all given to boasting. Uh, sometimes in good ways, but usually in not so good ways, more of a bragging type of way. Uh, I've gotten to where I can hardly watch professional sports anymore because of the boasting and bragging that goes on. But you know, we're kind of born, we're kind of born with that habit as uh, sinful people born into this world. I was thinking of a time when I was just a boy, and uh, it was Christmas time, and we were buying presents for each other in the family. I had siblings and a sister and two brothers, and, and uh, no doubt mom and dad had given us money to go shopping with, you know. So I uh, bought this present for my mom, and it, it, it was just a dime store little vase or cup or something. I think it was a vase. And uh, it was ugly as can be, but, you know, I, I thought it looked good for mom. And so uh, Christmas time came around, and, and uh, uh, we were opening our gifts, and so she opens, she opens my little gift. And uh, she looked at it and said, oh, honey, that's beautiful. Now, moms can lie when, when it's the lesser of two evils. <laughs> so she did. But uh, I, I said back to her, I said, well, it ought to be. It cost a whole dollar, <laughs> you know. It's, it's the way kids are to kind of, you know, turn the credit around to yourself rather than somebody else. And we keep doing that all of our lives, right? The Bible is full of examples of that. You remember in Luke 18 where the, the Pharisee and the publican went to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee stood in front of everyone. And the Bible says he prayed to himself, which is usually... All that a braggadocious person is doing is praying to himself. He says, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. I fast twice in the week. I give alms to the poor and tithes and all of that. And yet the publican who's over here by himself where no one can see him says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Bible says he's the one that went away justified, not the Pharisee. And so the, the Bible teaches on, on this often. You notice in our text that we left off in verse 13, and uh, notice how Paul ends that verse. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised. Why? That they may glory or boast in your flesh. As I said last week, I think they, you've become their prize. You are their trophy. They're bragging uh, about that. So that's why Paul says, but God forbid that I would glory except in the cross of Christ. God forbid, a, a typical expression of Paul as he says this, uh, that I should glory. And by the way, you might have the word boast there. You might have the word glory. Uh, 
uh, translations go back and forth. It's not the glory as giving glory to God in the word of doxa or doxological. This word means to boast. And so, you know, to glory in yourself or to glory in things that you shouldn't is to kind of boast in it. So you might have either word there. The Bible warns us many times of these kinds of things. We can boast in ourself, the Bible says. We can boast in man, that is, uh, you know, our own abilities. We can boast in appearance rather than heart uh, of our own physical appearance. We can brag or boast about another man's measure, as Paul puts it, that is somebody else's work that we're taking credit for. We can boast in the flesh. That's what verse 13 was about. We can boast in riches. We can, we can even boast in our own spirituality. Oh, look at me. Look how spiritual I am. We can boast in our knowledge because knowledge puffs up and uh, love builds up, the Bible says. But Paul says, only in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I want to glory or boast in. And when we think about the cross, as we've said, you have to put yourself in that first century context and realize that there was nothing uglier and lower and more degrading than a cross. To be crucified on a Roman cross was to be shamed publicly in front of everyone. And so for Paul to even make such a statement that I will glory in that cross, uh, you know, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness in that day. But to us, it is what? It's the power of God to us. Uh, it's salvation to us. And so Jesus says to you and me, take up your cross daily and follow me. We've actually been singing about that this morning in our service already. Because in that cross, there is power, there is love, there is acceptance, there is propitiation, as well as shame and suffering that comes to us. Now, we, we use crosses, we wear crosses, and I'm not, certainly not against it at all. Uh, it, I, any of that can be done wrongly, but I think sometimes, you know, a person will wear a necklace or a cross uh, to kind of as a witness, as a testimony to say, here's what I am. And in that sense, it's used in a good way. I have a cross hanging on the wall behind me. You know, it, it's not an a idol or even an icon. Uh, it's a symbol that says everything that we do here is because of the cross of Christ. When we preach from this pulpit, we exalt the cross and we lift up the cross. That's what we boast in, not in ourselves. And that's what Paul is saying here. So how is it used in the New Testament? Well, of course, there's the actual cross. There's that old rugged cross where Jesus died. Uh, and the Bible speaks of uh, Golgotha and the, the cross that was on that hill, of course. But then throughout the New Testament, when, the, when this cross is mentioned, like in this book of Galatians, the cross to us means salvation. It means liberty. You remember chapter 5, verse 1? Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free. That is, you tried to get to heaven on your own. You thought maybe you could earn God's goodness out of your goodness, and you can't. So praise the Lord that you don't have to be in that struggle anymore. The cross has made you free. The cross is the symbol of grace and of love that God has given us. So 
I want you to, to look as we uh, uh, go from there through this passage and notice how I've divided it just into two thoughts first in the first three verses uh, and then in the last two verses. The primacy of the cross and then a little bit about the marks of the cross. By primacy, of course, I mean that's the center. That's the middle of everything that we do. So notice again in verse 14, God forbid that I should glory or boast except in the cross, that ugly, disgusting thing of the first century, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says the, this expression, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. What does that kind of expression mean? How, how is Paul doing that? I, wanna, I want you to do something with me and go to the book of Colossians, to your right, just a couple books, and read a few verses with me there that puts this in, I think, a proper setting or context where Paul mentions the cross again, and it's a wonderful, great passage about the cross in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 Colossians 2.13, now you, he says, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you are lost. He has made alive, he saved you, regenerated you, made you alive, together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now notice how he did that, verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. There's a period there. In other words, that's the law. The handwriting of the Old Testament, the law of the Old Testament, is what, of course, the Jewish people thought, and a lot of people, Gentiles in Paul's day, that's what I've got to do to be saved. I've got to keep all of that law. I've got to, I've got to work. I've got to be good. I've got to even be perfect in order to be saved. But what did Jesus do for you? Well, read on. He has taken it, that law, out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. <laughs> they nailed Jesus to the cross, but Jesus was nailing our sins to the cross. They nailed him there thinking they were done with him, but he was actually providing the salvation for the very ones that were nailing him there. He nailed our efforts, our own individual uh, abilities to be saved, he nailed that to his cross. And all of that, that law that we had to keep, he nailed it to his cross. And then verse 15, having disarmed then <laughs> principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it, that is, in that cross, glorying in the cross. Therefore, let no one judge you. That is, what he's saying here is, don't let anyone say that just by accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior that you're not saved. Don't let anyone then judge you in any other way about your salvation, in food or in drink or in guarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. All of those things are shadows. But the reality is what happened on the cross of Christ. Now, back to our text, that, that passage is so central to the whole doctrine of the cross. 
And so notice that what, what I've done here in verses 14, 15, and 16 is say three things. First of all, we are crucified by the cross. Secondly, we are created a new creature by the cross, and then we're even ruled by the cross. So in verse 14, after he has said this, he says, by whom the world is crucified to me, and I'm crucified to the world. Someone said it, that the world nailed Paul to the cross, but Paul nailed the world to the cross. Uh, it works both ways, in other words. So, first of all, Paul is saying the world is crucified to me. It's dead to me. It's gone to me. Colossians 2.20. Therefore, you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. It's gone. You died to that. Philippians 3.8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may win Christ. You know, when I came to Christ as Savior, I think you also, I, I didn't have that in mind. I, I came to be saved. I knew I was lost. I knew I needed my sins forgiven, and I, I needed eternal life. That's all I was thinking. And yet when I came to Jesus Christ as my Savior, something changed in me. Something happened in me. And those things that, that I loved or that I was seeking after no longer mattered to me. Those things that I thought were so important were no longer important to me. Those things were nailed to the cross and they were gone. And the world then was, was crucified to me, uh, if you will. It doesn't mean that I didn't care about people or love people, but Satan's domain and Satan's world and the, the culture that he creates didn't mean anything to me anymore. That's exactly what Paul's saying. The loss of all things is what he's talking about. So the world, he says, is crucified to me, but I'm crucified to the world. You remember Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, by, live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm crucified with Christ. Again, the world put Jesus on the cross and didn't realize that what Jesus was doing for them. And, and I think that what Paul is saying here is the world put me on the cross and I've put them on the cross. But as far as the world's concerned, I'm lost to them too. The world is crucified to me, but I'm crucified to the world. Once I got saved, they didn't care about me anymore. Do you remember Paul's testimony there in, uh, when, when he got saved in Damascus? And he went up there to persecute Christians, and all the lost people were with him. And as soon as he got saved... Now the world is persecuting him, and he's with the Christians. That's what he's saying. The world has crucified me, too. I'm cut off from them. But that's okay. Nevertheless, I live. And not I, but Christ lives in me. Isn't that, folks, the, the Christian testimony? Isn't that what we read about for 2,000 years of people who 
didn't think they wanted salvation, didn't want Christianity, didn't want to have anything to do with, with uh, Christ, Christians, the church, or all of that. And then a person gets saved, and all of a sudden all those things turn around. All of those things are changed. And now they become a believer, and all of those things they used to think are important are no longer important to them. That's exactly what Paul is saying, and we see it in his life. And I think we should, of course, see it in our own lives also. So crucified by the cross, both ways, you to the world and the world to you. In verse 15, then, the, the cross also has created something new in us. Let's read it. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, avails anything but a new creation. I want you to notice a couple expressions here. First of all, we are in Christ Jesus. You see that little preposition, I in, such a big word in the New Testament. I think if I counted right some years ago, I counted 62 times in the New Testament, you have this kind of expression that we are in Christ Jesus. Now, the theologians call this positional truth, or there's a doctrine called the union with Christ. And when you got saved, you were placed into Jesus Christ. You are in him. You are in Christ. Let me remind you of a couple of familiar places. Romans 8, uh, at the beginning of the chapter, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. When you are in Christ, there's no condemnation. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I mean, there are so many times in the New Testament we almost go right over that little word without understanding exactly what happened. Our union with Christ. That union that we have, by the way, is like a house and a foundation. He's the foundation, we're the house. He's the head of the body, we're the body. He's the shepherd, we're the flock. He's the husband, we're the family. He's the, he's the vine, we're the branches. All of those are analogies of a union that we have with Christ. Now, we live in the, in the church, uh, church age, in the age of grace. And this expression, as a matter of fact, this reality is unique to the age in which we live. So we live in the church age for this reason. The church, that I'm speaking of the universal church of all believers from the day of Pentecost to the rapture, when that began at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and baptized those believers into the body of Christ. And after that day, everyone who got saved, including us, we were, the moment you got saved, the Holy Spirit not only regenerated you, He placed you into the body of Christ, and that's called the baptism of the Spirit. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Now, that puts us in Christ. The church, quote-unquote, that is this body of all saved people from Pentecost until the rapture, make up the church. And it's unique. We're a new creation also as a whole church. As a matter of fact, in that great rapture passage of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
when the rapture happens, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Who goes at the rapture? The church goes. No one else. The bride of Christ goes. The dead who are in Christ, whether in the grave at that time or living on the earth at that time, we go, and when that happens, the church is done. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is done. Though the Holy Spirit worked before that, He will work after that. The baptism that placed you in Christ is unique. So I want you to see that and see that that's why you are a new creation. So the verse goes on to say, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're American, Russian, Chinese, whatever, doesn't matter. Everyone, anyone can come to Christ and be placed into Christ. And when that happens, the only thing that really matters is that you were made a new creature or creation, if you will. I know you'll remember this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new creature. If you are in Christ, your life is new. You're different. You're changed. You're a, you're a new creature. Old things are passed away, of course, and all things are become new. Or Ephesians 2.10 puts it this way. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus, his workmanship, uh, if you will. And so the church is a new creation as a whole body of believers. We're, we're new in the whole dispensational plan from, from the Garden of, of Eden to the New Jerusalem. The church is a new creation. And you also, as a Christian, are a new creation. That's what Ephesians, this Ephesians 2.10, you're created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So you have a new birth, you have a new family, you have a new father who is in heaven, you have a new household of, of uh, fellowship, you have a new hope, you have a new purpose. Everything has become new because you're this new creation in Christ. And so we're not only crucified uh, by the cross, we're created by the cross to new creatures. But I want you to notice also then thirdly in verse 16, I use the word rule. We are ruled by the cross. You'll see the word in this verse. As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and also upon the Israel of God. The rule, that word rule is the word canon, canon in that language. Canon but spelled with one N, not two. If you, if you say canon, C-A-N-N-O-N, you're talking about that big piece of machinery that shoots bullets, okay? Uh, that's not what he means. But a canon with one N means like the, the, the uh, 66 books of the Bible make up the canon of Scripture, that body of, of belief. And canon means a, a ruler, a, a judge, so we, have, we take that word and make a ruler out of it. You've got something that's 12 inches long. You hold it up, it's a ruler. What do you do with this? You put it on, a, on something and you draw a straight edge. You've drawn something perfectly straight, and every other mark on there has to be judged according to that straight line. You've made something straight. 
And that's the way Paul is using it here and the way it is used in the New Testament. So everyone who walks according to this rule, well, what does he mean by that? He means the rule of the gospel. He means the rule of the cross. You don't come to Jesus any other way. You don't come to God in any other way except through the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. That's how you come. Everything else has to be judged by that. And so, someone, well, as a matter of fact, let me, let me read these two verses to you. 1 Timothy 1.11. If there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, then he says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to my trust. The glorious gospel of the blessed God. That's what you came to. That's what you're judged by. That's how you judge everything else. But then uh, also in 1 Peter 4.17, notice one word in this verse. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. If it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not, here's my word, obey the gospel of God. If you have a straight edge, you have to obey it. If you have something that's a canon, you know, our, uh, our constitution in this country is actually a canon of doctrines and of laws and of things that must be followed. You have to obey a canon. You have to obey a ruler. You have to obey the rule that God has given you. And you know what that is? That's the gospel. What Peter is saying there is, if you don't obey the gospel, you have to stand uh, in judgment before God and you'll be cast out of his presence forever and ever. You've got to obey this gospel. And I thought to myself, you know, in the day and age in which we live, a lot of people will look at that and say, well, that's pretty narrow. You're saying I have to obey your religion? I have to keep what you say. I have to do what the Bible says. It sounds like a fanatic to me. It sounds like extremism, you know, right-wing extremism or something to me to say you have to obey this doctrine. Well, it's hard to tell you, folks. That's exactly what the Bible's saying. You have to. As a matter of fact, I thought of these expressions. Jesus himself said, you blank be born again. What is that? You must be born again. You've got to obey this doctrine. There's no other way to get there. There is one name under heaven, given among men, Peter preaches, whereby you must be saved. You've got to obey it. Even the Philippian jailer came to Paul and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And he said, believe, not keep the law, not do good, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So this rule that he's talking about, as many as walk according to this rule, in other words, everyone who is born again by the grace of God and not by your works, by the cross of Jesus Christ, peace, mercy be upon them. Now, the, the rule of the gospel is one thing. 
then he's, he's bracketed two people of the gospel that we probably should notice here. And that is them. Who are them? Anyone who got saved. All who got saved. Jew and Gentile. Peace and, and mercy be upon you. But then notice he also says, not only upon the Gentiles, and by the way, praise the Lord, in Paul's day, there were those Jewish people still who, who were teaching the Galatians. No, you've got to keep the law. You've got to become Jewish. You have to do all of these things in order to have eternal life. Paul says none of it. Gentiles, anyone who keeps this rule of the gospel can be saved. But then he's, he makes this interesting statement at the end, and peace and mercy then, and upon the Israel of God. It's an important statement because in this, Paul, is he understands, first of all, that there are many Jews who have become believers in Jesus Christ. And I, I have said often, if a Jewish person in this age of grace accepts Jesus Christ as Savior, Paul, Barnabas, you know, all of them, then they are baptized by the Spirit of God and placed into the body of Christ, and it is the greatest thing any time to be part of the bride of Christ. That's who we are. But a Jew never loses his ethnic identity. And in the end, God is going to bless the Jewish people as a whole and give them the kingdom of God, and he will be there with them ruling from Jerusalem, with the 12 tribes about him for a thousand years on this earth. And so he still says, uh, peace and mercy upon the Israel of God. As a matter of fact, the scripture even says he calls them elect. Remember Romans 11, R Romans 9, 10, 11 are all about the nation of Israel. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Amazing. There's been no people harder to reach with the rule of the gospel than the Jewish people in, in our day and, and every day. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. They're elect of God. They have a covenant with God. doesn't mean that just by being Jewish, you're saved. Because without Christ, you are lost for eternity. But it means that God still has a covenant with the Jewish people that he will, he will complete. So in verse 26 of chapter 11, so all Israel shall be saved. What does that mean? It means that when Jesus Christ comes back in glory to establish his kingdom on the earth, all lost people will be taken off, Jew and Gentile. And only saved people will be left on the earth. There will be the church of Jesus Christ, and there will be Gentiles, and there will be Israel. And every Israelite that exists at that time will be born again. And believers in Jesus Christ, by the way, not just Jewish. And so when he says, upon the Israel of God, Paul, as a Jew himself, realizes that the promises that God made to them someday will, will come true. And we in this day and age in which we live probably toward the end of the age of grace, realize that what's happening over there in the land of Israel, what's happening to the Jewish people are important and important to God. And it's kind of like a, a clock that we watch to see what's happening. Now, 
Having said that, I want to I go to one uh, other thought, and that is the marks of the cross, which uh, are in verses 17 and 18. Let me, let me read those two. From now on, let no man trouble me. I bear in my body, and then he says, the marks of the Lord Jesus. Notice that word body. You see that word body? Now read verse 18. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your, what's that word? Spirit. Small s, not the Holy Spirit, your spirit. Your body and your spirit. So you notice in my outline that I have two thoughts about the marks of the cross. One is the marks in our flesh, verse 17. The other, the marks in our spirit, from verse 18. So verse 17 again says, I bear in my very body the marks of the Lord Jesus. But he starts that, he starts that verse by saying, from now on let no one trouble me. In other words, to me, the marks in a person's flesh that he or she may have suffered for the cause of Christ is the proof of commitment. I belong to Christ. As a matter of fact, I have the marks in my body, Paul says, so don't trouble me about it. Don't contradict me. Don't think that you can change my mind. I belong to Christ. I am his. You know, uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, he talked about when he was taken up to heaven, if you remember that, translated up to heaven, Paul himself. And then Right after that, in verse 6, he says, Though I might desire to boast, I could boast about that, but he says, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. When I tell you about what I saw, you can say what you want, but I'm telling you the truth. I was there and I saw it. No one could have convinced Paul that there wasn't a heaven after he's taken up to the third heaven. You know, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. Remember in Colossians 2 where we read about the cross, he says, let no one judge you. Don't let anyone try to determine that salvation is some other way. Let no one judge you. So here uh, you have this proof of commitment. Jesus said, when you put your hand to the plow, you don't look back. I like this expression in 1 Peter chapter 4 where Peter says, uh, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men. You don't live the rest of your life after you get saved for what the world wants of you, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the world, of the Gentiles. You've lived enough for the world. Live the rest of your life for Christ. Live the rest of your life for Him. And so... Don't let anybody trouble me about that. Don't question my commitment in Christ. But secondly, I, I want you to, to see these marks. These are the actual identification of Christ. For he says, I bear in my body, my flesh, the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word marks, one other word I'll define for you, is the word stigma. Plural, stigmata, marks. Stigma. You have kind of a stigma on you that the world doesn't like. And that is the cross of Christ. That is that the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. The only testimony you have 
is in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the cross. That's the only boasting that you have. That's a stigmata. Here's kind of an interesting little historical note, if you will. That word stigma is used in a number of different ways in, the, in that time of the world and in that language. Number one, it was used as a brand, and sometimes it's translated brand. And in the days of slave trading in that old Roman empire, they would put a brand on the slaves, and especially a runaway slave had a brand on him. It was also uh, described as a tattoo for military personnel, that they would tattoo their soldiers, and they had that brand or stigma on them because they were now a soldier. There's an amulet or a, uh, something that would be worn that identified you with a certain idol uh, or, or a certain god or goddess. And that was called a stigma. And then there's a weird thing that happened in the history of the Roman church called, there were people called stigmatists. The stigmatists were people who believed that Jesus had five wounds in his body, two hands, two feet, and, and on his side uh, and on his head. But the five wounds that they describe are the wounds of Jesus Christ. And there are those who believe that if you live holy enough, that your body will develop the same five wounds that Jesus had. And if you're very holy, they will even bleed like the wounds of Jesus bled. They were called stigmatists. And sometimes you read these people and you don't know what you're reading when you read, uh, you know, their so-called devotion to Christ. But I don't think that's what Paul is referring to at all. What Paul is referring to is the, the actual cuts and marks and bruises that were still on his body from just a few months ago up in Galatia. What happened in Galatia? He was stoned on his first missionary journey. John Mark had gone back because he was afraid of this country anyway. But Barnabas was there, and Paul was stoned and left for dead, and they thought he was dead, but uh, he got up. He went with the disciples back into the town. He went on preaching on his missionary journey. His head was scarred. His body was scarred. He, he, he had these marks on his life. And I think what he's saying here at the end of his first book, written to those Galatians, you know I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Now, I think there's a connection this way with that slave mark, and that is in the Old Testament, a slave had to be set free, someone working for someone else, every, every seven years. Uh, he, had, he or she had to be set free. But that slave could say, I don't want to go free. I want to I work for you the rest of my life. And so do you remember what happened? You go to the doorpost of the house, and they take an awl, and they take a big chunk out of the ear. And from that time on, you have that stigma or that mark on you that you are a bond slave, that you now belong to that person the rest of your life. And I think that from here on, after this first book, Paul is going to address himself always as the doulos, the bond slave of Jesus Christ. I have the marks on me of that slave. I think that's what he's referring to here, and that's what has happened to him. Now, you and I may not have such marks on our body. There are believers in our world right now, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are suffering physically and in the flesh for their faith in Christ. 
I don't have such marks. Maybe you don't have such marks, or maybe you do. And if, if that's so, okay. You know, even the writer of Hebrews at the end of the book said to those Jewish believers, you haven't suffered unto blood yet. And he could say to most American Christians, we haven't suffered unto blood yet. Lots of people in the world do. But I, that's why I want to include the last thought, and that is, but we have marks in our spirit, and we should have. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Back in verse 16, he mentioned peace and mercy. Now in verse 18, he mentions grace. The, those three common words that Paul uh, gives his, his salutations when he begins a letter. He could include comfort, love, brother. He could include a lot of other words here. And yet that's what you as a believer have. Now, if you ask yourself, did I give up anything when I came to Christ? Here's all my old life. Here's what I was doing before I got saved. Oh, look what you gave up. Look what you don't do anymore. But you yourself say, I didn't give up anything. I gained. You want to see what I gained? I gained peace, mercy, and grace, and a lot of other words that go along with it. Peace in my soul. The comfort I have of God and the Holy Spirit. The mercy from the God who would otherwise be my judge is now my king and my savior. And grace that is greater than all of our sins, as we say. Uh, you know, when sin abounded, grace did much more abound in my life. These folks are the marks of the Lord Jesus in your life. These are ones that are in your spirit not physically on your body, but the world sees them. And the world sees your life for Christ. The world sees your dedication to Christ. And you may be crucified from the world because of it. And maybe you have to crucify the world from you because of it. But with your spirit, he says. So be with your spirit. Paul ends a few of his books with this phrase. For example, at the end of Philemon, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So when he says to second, in 2 Corinthians 4, we are troubled on every side, but not distressed. That's, that's a fruit of the spirit. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I can't, couldn't pass up the last word of the book. What is it? Amen. So Paul says, amen, benediction the end of a prayer. I think the psalmist would have put there, Selah. Stop and think about this. You know, we end our prayers almost always. Uh, we say a prayer and then we say, in Jesus' name, amen, right? That's just kind of the way we end things. What does that mean when we do that? It means everything I have said is committed to him. Everything I've asked for is dependent upon him. I pray in his name. He's my intercessor. He's my go-between. Otherwise, I couldn't even pray at all. And so I think Paul simply, as a benediction, says, 
I want you to stop, rest, meditate, apply what I'm saying, put a resignation to everything that you've heard in this book. Amen. I agree. That's what I believe. That's who I am. Amen. I'm thinking about that. I'll do that. And I think at the end of our study, that's what God is asking all of us. Put your amen on this. Put your resignation to these things on this. And say with Paul, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, stand with me if you will. Let's pray. We'll pray in that way. We'll sing a song. We'll ask God to speak to our hearts as we sing too. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for what we have learned in the book of Galatians, how it's expanded throughout the Bible and the New Testament, how, Father, we understand who we are in Christ. We understand the cross of Jesus Christ and what Jesus did there for us. We'll brag, we'll boast, and nothing else. So, Father, thank you for accepting us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you, Father, for the sacrifice of your Son. Many things are said to us in this book and in these books of your word that we need to do. So help us, Father, to be these kind of people. Help us to be these bond slaves that have put the stigma or the mark upon us to be Christ forever, to be his bond slave. So, Father, bless as we sing, speak to our hearts. I pray, Father, that everything that we do now would be surrendered to you and bring you honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a song, and I'll have a word just after that. So, Gordon, come ahead. <laughs>